As I mentioned earlier, my name's Renee. I'm one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. Super glad that you're here. Uh, like a lot of you, I was really hit with this virus that's been going around, so I was laid up for a couple of days at home this week and uh, did a little bit of work, and then I, I, I thought, you know, I need some recreational reading, and I pulled off of a shelf a biography of Paul McCartney that I read years and years ago. It was fascinating for a lot of reasons, but I read a story at the end of this that I'd never heard before. Uh, he was out horseback riding with his young children, and uh, the girl that's there in the front with the, with the brunette, that's his second daughter, she was out horseback riding with him, and suddenly she got, she got this really thoughtful look on her face. And, uh, and she said, Dad, I have to ask you something. And he said, well, what is it? And she said, let me get this straight. Are you telling me you're the Beatle, Paul McCartney? And it dawned on her for the first time who her dad was. I love that story. Suddenly seeing her father in a brand new light. I love it because it reminds me of a similar and also true story that Diane Disney told Life magazine when she was very young. She learned from friends at school who her father was. And when she learned about this and left school, she came home, and that night she stood in front of her father as he read the newspaper, and he slowly lowered it as he felt her stare. And she said with her hands on hips, you never told me you were that Walt Disney. <laughs> and I love this picture because you can just see this look on her face like, whoa, my dad, my dad is Walt Disney. These wonderful moments that we all can have when you see somebody that you thought you knew pretty well, and then suddenly you see them in a brand new light. Does that ever happen to you? It actually happened to me just a couple of weeks ago with my wife, Lori. She, uh, Lori, I just, there she is in the front row checking her scores on her iPhone. I got you. I caught you there. But um, no, Lori is a great teacher, but I rarely see her in that role. She teaches seminary over in Sacramento and Santa Clara, and so I don't get to see her in that context. Well, a couple of weeks ago, she was teaching up at Mount Hermon, and she had the auditorium, and, and I decided, I'm going to go up there to just kind of support her and sit in the back of the room. And, and I got there, and I was like, wow, this is really filling up. The, the auditorium was really filling with, with like, I don't know, a, a couple of hundred people. And, and I hear people whispering as, as they come in, I never miss her whenever she teaches. And I'm kind of, kind of like starting to puff up with some pride, you know. And then she started teaching, and I'm telling you, she was killing it. And I start telling the person I'm sitting next to, you know, that's my wife. I'm her husband. Oh, yeah. So then I start taking pictures, and I start posting them on Instagram and Facebook. My wife is killing it right now. I was just bursting with pride. That whole weekend, I'm, like, bringing her coffee and snacks. You're awesome. I'm such a big fan of yours. I just fell in love with her all over again because I got to see her in this, in this new role that I rarely get to see her in as a teacher who is just, like, killing it with her amazing teacher skills. I had that uh, with my son uh, a couple of weeks ago, too. He was in the play The Little Mermaid over here at, at Crocker Theater. And, and at home, he's a self-admitted introvert. And then on stage, he was dancing and singing. And I just felt like standing up in the theater and shouting out, that's my boy, like all the other parents there, right? Well, something very much like that is about to happen to you with someone else that you already love. You are probably here today because you love Jesus. 
or at least you're drawn to Jesus. That's part of why you're here at church today. But, but if we're honest, there's times as churchgoers that the image we have of Jesus Christ gets a little familiar, right? We know him. We love him. He's our Lord and Savior. But, but if I dare say it, sometimes the, the picture almost gets a little bit boring, kind of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We've heard all the stories before. We've heard the gospels. We've, we've, you know, we've heard the epistles. We've heard that he died on the cross for our sins. Well, get ready. Because in Revelation chapter 19, there's a radical shift in the way you and I perceive Jesus Christ. And and the Apostle John writes about somebody that he knew and knew well. He had traveled with Jesus for three years. He knew Jesus as the carpenter's son who grew up to die on the cross for our sins and was, was risen from the dead. But suddenly, in this vision in Revelation 19, he sees three brand new pictures of Jesus. He sees Jesus in, in dimensions that even he had never seen him before. I call this part of the Bible Jesus Revealed. And, and it's intended to give a burst of inspiration to the early Christians, and it can do the same for you too. If your faith needs new life, if your endurance going through tough times needs a boost, There is nothing you can do to get that boost more than falling in love all over again with Jesus Christ. And that is what's going to happen to you in Revelation chapter 19. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on this in case uh, you're joining us maybe for the first time today or you need a refresher. The book of Revelation is the final book of the Bible. And it was written by a man named John who was in exile on the prison island of Patmos. That's an island still exists on the Aegean Sea. And you can see the ruins of the Roman fortifications there where they used to keep prisoners like John. Uh, Tradition has it that he wrote the book of Revelation in a cave. That was his prison cell at the time. And he writes Revelation as encouragement to the first century Christians back on the mainland who are being persecuted and tortured and and captured. And and it seems like their hope could be ebbing. And so he writes them this letter from prison to encourage them to keep going on. Now, Because they're under Roman persecution, that's likely why John has to write the book of Revelation in what to us sounds very unusual uh, ways. He he uses a lot of dreamlike imagery and symbolism as he talks about uh, the Roman Empire as dragons and and beasts and, and, and as a great prostitute even, just some really gnarly imagery. But I think he almost has to relate his message in code because the Christians are under such active persecution from the Roman government. And so for much of Revelation, what he does is he tells these people, you know what, actually, it's going to get more intense for some of you. The, The beast is going to emerge out of the sea and he's going to devour some of you. He's going to capture some of you. He's going to try to lead and deceive the entire world. And so, so that middle and, and, and late middle part of the book of Revelation can seem so intense. Paul Spurlock talked about it a, c- a couple of weeks ago here. He has a class digging deeper on Revelation. You can check out on Wednesday nights for even more details. And so, and so the, there, there's this, this part of Revelation that's very intense that sounds almost depressing where it seems like the evil forces are marshalling their strength and the world's just getting uglier and uglier. And, and we can feel like that too when we look at headlines today. And then... Revelation chapter 19 breaks. And at the beginning of Revelation chapter 19, the crowd in heaven sings hallelujah four times because at last the ugliness is past. And you see three 
pictures of Jesus for your soul to love. And I wanted to give you the context because these are set off against all the gnarliness that came before in the book of Revelation. And and if you see these three new dimensions of who Jesus Christ is, it is just going to inspire your faith so much no matter what you are going through today. So let's dive right in. Grab your message notes that look like this so you can follow along with these three beautiful pictures of Jesus Christ. And, And the first one is so stunning and so breathtaking that I really want to spend most of our time on this first point this morning, and that's this. We see Jesus as bridegroom. Jesus as bridegroom. Jesus as a brand new husband, excited on his wedding day. At the beginning of Revelation 19, as I mentioned, you hear hallelujah four times. That's the only time in the New Testament that word ever occurs. Hallelujah, 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 because finally, hallelujah, God is showing that he is victorious over all this evil and sin that we've seen in the book of Revelation, all of this this persecution against uh, God's people. And in Revelation 19.7, the crowd in heaven sings, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the what? The wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's you and me, has made herself ready. And then in verse 9, it says this. And let's read this verse out loud together. Let me hear you. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I think when John heard this in his vision, it probably reminded him of how Jesus said in Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a what? A a wedding feast for his son. Now, I hope this breaks through because do you get how amazing it is that God describes his love for you in, in such an intimate, such a personal, such a romantic way? One of the oldest and most beautiful pictures of this in all Scripture is in Isaiah, where it says in Isaiah 54, this is God talking to his people. Your maker is your husband. And the Lord of hosts is his name. For the Lord has called you like a wife. Man, just just let that just sink in for just a minute. Great quote from John Ortberg The highest delight that the most passionate groom feels for the most beloved bride on this earth is just a dim reflection of what it is that God feels for you. Now, maybe for you, this whole idea of Jesus as husband, as bridegroom, is frankly not very appealing. And we just have to acknowledge that. Maybe because of your personal history, your own experience with marriage or with love, with husbands or with fathers has not been great. And so you hear about 
God as creator, you're fine with it. You hear about God even as Lord, that's good. You hear about Jesus as shepherd, that's beautiful. But they talk about him as husband, that's actually like repellent to you. Let me just address that. Two weeks ago on, of all places, American Idol, (laughs) there was a very powerful moment. Uh, Kelly Clarkson sang a song that she actually wrote. And let me give you the backstory to this. As a six-year-old girl, Kelly was abandoned by her father, who left her mother and her younger sister uh, alone. And she admits she has had very serious issues after that with fatherhood, with marriage, with the whole idea of, of married love. But now, she says, her husband, with whom she's expecting their second child, is changing all of that. And she co-wrote a beautiful song that tells her story. Now, it's a long song, so I'm just going to show you a, a, a clip of it. But I want you to watch this and listen to her tell her own story. And all I remember is your back Walking towards the airport Leaving us all in your past I traveled 1,500 miles to see you Begged you to want me, but you didn't want to. But piece by piece, he collected me up off the ground where you abandoned things. Yeah, piece by piece, he filled the holes that you burned in me. Six years old, and you know, he never walks away. He never asks for money. He takes A man can be kind and a father could stay. And all of your words, they fall flat. I made something of myself and now you want to come back. But your love. It has to be earned Back then I didn't have anything you needed So I was worthless Piece by piece he collected me Off the ground where you abandoned things Yeah, Piece by piece he filled the holes that you burned in No, he'll never walk away. 
I've watched that 10 times and I cry every single time. But why do I show you that? Because I want to acknowledge that that is the experience that unfortunately many people in this room have had with husbands and with fathers. But do you understand what the image in Revelation 19 means? You know, even if you didn't have that experience with a father, even if your father was great, that deep down longing for totally unconditional love that will never fade, that can never be met by any human being, ever, because humans are fallible. You're fallible. I'm fallible. That deep down need to have all those holes burned in your heart filled that can only be met and will only be met by one person, and that's Jesus Christ. And just look up here for just a second, because I feel like God really wants some of you to, to hear this today. I know He does. You may have had a horrible experience with love. Somebody in your life was a bad example for you. But he will never leave you, ever. He will always take care of you. Always. Why? Because he loves you absolutely unconditionally. And he knows exactly how your heart was hurt. And what Revelation 19 paints a picture of is that one day, one day, that deep down longing for that kind of love that can never quite be fully met on earth will be completely met by Jesus Christ when he's revealed in glory as your husband, the bridegroom of the church, the people that he loves. Amen? And I tell you what, this, this, this picture takes on added dimension when you understand what this meant to the people in the first century. Let me just explore that a little bit. There, there were some fascinating marriage customs of first century Judaism. It was a little bit different in those days than ours. Uh, it went into long stages. You didn't just propose and then elope. First, there was a betrothal seminary uh, ceremony which involved the bridegroom settling on a dowry or purchase price in those days money changed hands before a wedding in this case the fiance's family giving to the bride's family and then that agreement would be sealed by the the fiance's family drinking a cup of wine with the bride's father over which these words were pronounced this is the cup of the new covenant we've agreed on a on a dowry price and then the next step was the groom leaves for his father's house to prepare room for the new family, him and his bride. He built like a little wing added to the family home. And then, only then, several months later, the groom returned to his fiancée's house, but the exact hour of his return would be always kept a surprise 
People would know generally, but the custom was the exact time would be kept a secret so that when the groom showed up with the groomsmen, it was like a big surprise party and they had the wedding and the party begins and the wedding reception party would often last as long as two weeks. It was a full blowout. Do we have any fathers of daughters here in the room? Imagine having to pay for that, right? A two-week-long wedding reception. Now, Remember how in 33 AD, Jesus is having the Last Supper in the upper room with his disciples. And watch this. He uses some very specific words. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he says, I go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. And then he promises, I will come again to bring you to, bring you to me, but nobody is going to know the day or the hour. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, we're the bride, and he's the bridegroom. He's saying he paid the purchase price with his own blood. He sealed our betrothal with a cup of wine. He's preparing a place for us in his father's house, and he's coming to take us to himself to be with him forever. We've been betrothed. And this picture of Jesus as husband is meant to teach me at least these three things. First, I am very loved. You are very, very loved. I mean, it's awesome that Jesus loves us as disciples. That's good enough. But it goes deeper. He loves us as friends, and that would be awesome enough, you know, friends of God. But this shows me he loves me even more tenderly, more emotionally, more authentically, more affectionately than all those relationships. He loves me like a lover. We're his bride. And this means I'm very secure. Because you've been bought with a price, his own blood that he gave on the cross. And that means he will always stay like that song. He will never walk away. He'll never break your heart. Not ever. And when I see him in this light, then I respond to him and realize I am called to faithfulness. Faithfulness. And now listen, I want you to stay on that word on page one for just a second. I promise I'll tell you when to flip over to page two in your notes. But here's what I mean. Listen, and this is huge. If I'm engaged to Jesus Christ, then the central issue for me, listen, is fidelity, faithfulness, staying true to my lover. And this means that obedience goes far beyond legalism. You know, obedience, obeying Jesus Christ, not sinning, you know. It's a lot more than keeping some list of rules. It's staying faithful to my lover. Now, let's admit it. I have not always been faithful to Jesus Christ, and neither of you. I've sinned. And, and the Bible says in both the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures that, that when we sin, that for God, that's like, that's like a bride cheating on her husband. That's the way he sees it. And, and, and my question is, why don't we all see it that way? How do we ever get to the point where we can sin and go, oh, well, I can get away with it. He'll forgive me. It's, not, it's no big deal. No big why does it always break our hearts? Why don't we always see it as an, as an issue of, of fidelity, of faithfulness to my betrothed? 
Well, you know why? It's because we fall out of love. At the, almost the very beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus said to the Ephesian church, you have lost your first love. And how did they fall from their first love? Busyness. He said, you do a lot of great things. You're super busy. Your to-do list is like 100 things long. But you've left behind your first love. And that's exactly how it happens if you're married. To those of you who are married, you know exactly what that, what that means, right? We just get busy with our to-do lists, and pretty soon our ardor for our loved one kind of goes away somehow, just, just with little, little, little to-do lists. And so what's the answer? What's the solution to falling in love with our loved one all over again? Well, it's simple. Think, again, if you're married, think back to when you were first engaged or the early days of your marriage. I can tell you what your relationship strategy was. Here it was. Step number one, spend as much time with each other as you possibly can. Step two, when you're not together, think about each other as much as you possibly can, right? Love makes things super simple. And this image of Jesus is a call back to simplicity. Just pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Obedience in this context is profoundly relational. And the more we see it that way, the more we just fall in love with Christ, with the one who first loved us, the easier it's going to be to follow him. Now, this first picture is, is all about love. It's, it's very emotional. It's very deep. And then the next picture in Revelation 19 seems, seems at first to switch gears entirely, right? But it's part of this beautiful multidimensional picture of Jesus Christ that can really inspire you this morning. And the second vision in this chapter is this, Jesus as warrior. Jesus as a warrior. And of course, here in the Bay Area right now, the idea of Jesus as warrior, extremely positive connotations, right? Uh, we love the warriors around here right now, but, but for a lot of people, this is kind of, a, this is kind of an issue because it, it sounds so violent, right? Look at what John says he sees in verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. Now, look at the details here. It says he's seated on a white horse on Palm Sunday, which we celebrate next weekend. Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. In the first century, what a king rode showed his intentions. If he rode a donkey, he was riding to peace. If he rode a horse, he was riding to war. On Palm Sunday, it was a donkey, but here Jesus is on a horse because he is riding to war against evil. It says with justice, he judges. And if this idea of Jesus as a judge and as a warrior is a little intense to you. It gets more intense. Next verse, his eyes are like what? Blazing fire. Now, for different reasons, for maybe different people here, this image might be a little disconcerting. Some of you felt uncomfortable with that image of Jesus as, as bridegroom until maybe you understood it a little bit more. Now, now, some of you are feeling uncomfortable with this. It's like, I don't know, especially if you're used to the image of Jesus from our pop culture, Right? We've talked about this before in the movies. He's like, you know, Prozac Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Not eyes like blazing fire. 
eyes like you know, limpid pools or something, meek and mild and never gets riled. Our pop culture image of Jesus is so very Mr. Rogers in a robe, isn't it? Just like, it's a beautiful day in the Galilean wilderness, you know? Let's take a donkey because trolleys haven't been invented yet. He's just super gentle. So if this is how you think of Jesus, what is this eyes like blazing fire business all about? It kind of throws you off. What does it mean? But let me put it this way. We are getting closer and closer to the time of year when you will notice the behavior of the ducks and the geese in our parks slowly begin to change. Geese and ducks around here, they're normally pretty placid animals. You know, they, they kind of leave you alone most of the time unless they're, they're begging for bread. But we're just a few weeks away from when you walk the wrong path in a park, you're going to encounter something different. And, and let me show you a video to explain what I mean. This, this was shot by this guy's co-workers secretly out the window. And you'll see a geese approaching him here in this video. And uh, the geese won't leave him alone. And the guy tries to defend himself. And let me just kind of assure you, no geese were harmed in the making of this video. This geese never gets hurt. The guy never lands a blow on him. But the geese stands his ground against this guy who's got away 10 times more than him. And the guy thinks he's chasing the geese away, but the geese just keeps coming after him. <laughs> the geese is fine, everybody. The geese is fine. Now watch this. Look at, do you see the other goose over in those rocks on the left-hand side of the picture? That explains why that other goose is acting this way. This is a male goose that is guarding his woman who's sitting on the eggs, and he's not done guarding her. Here he comes again. The guy has no idea that he's being amusing to his coworkers and to the two million people who've watched this on YouTube since then, right? But if you look at what you saw in that goose, what you saw was this. Goose eyes like blazing fire, right? That goose was spreading a very clear message. You mess with my goslings, you mess with me. And you see, that's the image of Jesus we have here in Revelation 19. Eyes like blazing fire because he is saying, you mess with my babies, you mess with me. Because we've just seen chapter after chapter where John has been seeing these visions of the dragon and the, the beast and, 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 and the, the harlot and all these horrible characters coming against God's people and they're being persecuted and they're being killed. And here Jesus says, no, I am going to pay back all the evil that you have done. It's interesting, in, in Revelation, there's this mounting sense of battle, right? There's all these forces of evil. And, and for chapter after chapter, John's saying that the nations have been gathering together to do battle against God and against his people. And finally, here it comes in Revelation 19. The battle is joined, and the battle's never even fought. In fact, it's all over in an instant because of this. It says that Jesus Christ conquers them with the word of his mouth. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, his mouth. What this means is Jesus wins by simply speaking, like he always has. This is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. 
This is the one who said to the wind of the waves, peace be still, and they were still. This is the one who said to a dead Lazarus, come forth, and he did. And here, all the forces of evil finally marshal against God and his people, and Jesus, with a word, says it's done. That means it's nowhere close to an even fight. Jesus doesn't have to sort of go to the wall and muster his last ounce of strength to just barely overcome the opposition. This means evil will be utterly, finally, completely destroyed like that at the word of Christ. Aren't you glad to hear it? Don't you get tired of watching news headlines where there's evil, there's there's drive-by shootings, and there's suicide bombings, and there's brutal dictators, and and closer to home, there's adults who abuse children, and you just wonder, why, why, why is all this evil happening? And what John is saying is that it'll turn out that all of the Stalins and all the Hitlers and all the lesser-known agents of evil did not get away with a thing, not a thing. It's all being seen, and it'll all be set right, and evil will all be destroyed one day utterly. This picture of Christ shows me Jesus wins. Don't you need to hear that sometimes? Jesus wins. Evil is judged. Death is defeated. And that's really the big message of the book of Revelation. Now, the fact that Jesus can win so quickly does not mean that you and I don't have a role to play. Did you notice this detail in verse 14? The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, wait a minute. What kind of an army dresses in white linen, right? If this is war, the army should be dressed like soldiers, right? With swords and spears. But the army of Jesus doesn't fight like that. It's interesting. Uh, What does it mean they bring to the battle white linen? They dress in fine white linen. Well, in verse 8, it describes what that means. It says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. That is the weapon of our warfare. Love, care for the sick, visit people in the hospital, feed the needy. You know, brilliant sociologist Rodney Stark in his amazing book, The Rise of Christianity, explains how Christians won the hearts of the Roman Empire, and he says it was this, their love of others even in the face of their own persecution. Like when plagues would hit the cities, the Christians would be the ones who stayed and helped the sick. And that's why, again, I just want to express my thanks to you for something that happened this past Wednesday night when TLC got that award for raising the most meals for Second Harvest Food Bank this past year. Why is that important? Because these are the weapons of our warfare. When we as a church, as a people of God, are seen as people who feed the poor. When we give a cup of cold water to thirsty, when we visit those in sick and in prison, those weapons are so effective because we're using the weapons that Jesus fashioned for us. And they are powerful weapons. And this is so important, especially now in an era when people who call themselves religious are using suicide bombs and guns as the weapon of their warfare. It's more important than ever for followers of Jesus to fight as the army dressed in fine linen, because they'll know we're a different army, and they'll know we're Christians by our love. Amen? And that brings up the third and final picture of Jesus here, Jesus as king. Jesus as king. I love this. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Circle that phrase and say that phrase out loud with me. Say it like you mean it. He is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we hear this all the time, and we think it could only be a religious phrase, but actually when this was first written in the first century Roman Empire, this was revolutionary to apply this to Jesus Christ. Because when Caesar addressed the Senate, the Senate stood up and acclaimed him as, quote, King of kings and Lord of lords. So in Revelation 19, to say this is true of Jesus Christ is saying something. It's saying, no, Caesar, even you have a king. Even you have a Lord. And then it says, on his head are many crowns. That seems like kind of a funny image, right? Crowns all stacked up, all crooked on his head. But in the first century, it was not uncommon for a ruler to wear more than one crown to show that he was ruler of more than one country. This means Christ is king over all kingdoms. Now, in our day, of course, we don't wear crowns. In our day, we have different ways of symbolizing who is in authority in any particular place. I read one writer that had a great point. He said, when everybody in a family, for example, is gathered together watching television, they're all together in the same room, sitting on the couch watching TV, how can you tell who holds the authority in that family? Shout it out. That's right. It is the one who is using this, the remote, right? That is the one who has authority in that family. And so if, if, this verse, if this verse was being written today, what it would say is, his eyes are like blazing fire, and in his hand he holds many remotes. <laughs> because the idea is that he has authority. He is Lord over all. Now, that just makes me think this. We, we hear in the book of Revelation of people casting their crowns before Jesus. And to us, that doesn't have a lot of emotional resonance, you know, because we don't have crowns. Sure, I'd cast a crown if I had it. <laughs> Big deal. Well, let me put it this way. Are you still hanging on to your remote in the face of the lordship of Jesus Christ? Is there some area in your life where Jesus is saying, you know, I am king of kings, I am lord of lords, and there'll be so much serenity in your life when you really turn over all control of your life to me, and you're saying, yeah, but I want to hang on to the remote in this one area. I want to keep watching the bitterness channel because there's some people I really have some things against, and I'd like to just do some binge watching of that for a while. Why don't you give me that remote? No, it's mine. Give me the remote. No, I want to watch the worry channel. I love to watch that, especially when I can't sleep late at night. Just tune into worry 24-7 and think about all the potential bad things that could happen in my life. That's what I want to do. No, I want to watch the greed channel or the lust channel and think about all the things I want that I can't have. And God is saying, give me the remote because <laughs> I'm king of kings. I'm lord of lords. I'm the holder of all remote controls. <laughs> you know, this, there's so many ways, so many depths in which this verse talks about it. It also says, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. What, you ever wonder what's, what that's all about? Check this out. In ancient times, they thought if you knew someone's name, and especially if you knew a God's name, then you had some level of control over them. And in a way, that's true. If you see your friend Fred and you go, hey, Fred, he's going to turn around because he's heard his name, right? But what this is saying is no one 
controls Jesus. He's got a name that no one knows. This, this picture of Christ just builds and shows me he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, Jesus rules over all. There is so much serenity that comes from just aligning yourself to this reality and saying, Lord, you rule, take control of my life. I turn my life, my will, my soul over to you. And there is so much tension that comes from trying not to live in sync with this reality, saying, no, I want to rule. So do you see how specifically these three pictures of Jesus meant so much to those first century Christians? Look at these three pictures. Here's what this is saying. You can fall in love with this person that you've known, maybe some of you your whole life, Jesus Christ. Fall more deeply in love when you see him in these exciting, fresh ways. Jesus as your lover, your betrothed, your bridegroom. Jesus as the warrior who will write Every single wrong and whose army we serve, Jesus as king who is Lord over all. That, that is the way that all those holes that were burned in your soul get filled. And I can begin to know him. This doesn't just happen in Revelation 19 in the future. I can begin to know him in these ways right now. It starts in my heart when I release control to him and I say, Christ Jesus, I want to know you as my betrothed, as the just warrior, as the king of kings in my life right now. And I open my heart to you. In a moment, we're going to together sing, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. And I wonder if you can really sing that sincerely. Let's pray and let's ask God to reveal to you areas in your life where you need to open your life up to these dimensions of Jesus. Let's, let's bow our heads together. Lord, thank you so much that you love us all just like a bridegroom loves his bride. And God, I pray for all those here today with broken hearts that they'd be secure and treasured in that amazing love that will never leave, that will always stay. And God, thank you that you're the unmatched, just warrior, that all evil will be vanquished with just a word from you. And in the meantime, help us to live as soldiers dressed in white linen, the righteous acts of the saints. That's our weapon of warfare. And God, help every one of us now to surrender to you completely as King of kings, and as Lord of lords. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.